Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person who doesn't know who won the NCAA finals, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Keith Raboy, an investment partner at Kosla Ventures and a longtime entrepreneur who I've known for a very long time. He was an executive at PayPal in the early 2000s and also worked at places like LinkedIn, Slide, and Square. He joined Kosla Ventures in March of 2013 and has invested in companies such as Stripe, HealthTap, and Teespring. Keith, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here with you. You need to top Chamath from our last... That's going to be a big challenge. Well, you're kind of mouthy, so I think you'll be, <laughs> we'll be just fine. So, he's, he's my inspiration. Is he? He should be. He's really funny. He did a great job. Let's talk about... You've been around a long time. You've been an entrepreneur like Chamath, an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. Talk a little bit about your background. I think people don't really know a lot about where you've been before you got to PayPal. Yeah, so I had a pretty eclectic background, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend to other people uh, right. who aspire to be entrepreneurs or VCs. I started as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I went to law oh, school. Right. I clerked it for an appellate court judge and then worked for the canonical Wall Street law firm known, known as Sullivan and Cromwell. Mm-hmm. And then I hit escape in uh, February. Why? Because it's a horrible, horrible life. <laughs> well, it's I did in, in, in January of 2000, mm-hmm. I built 365 hours to our clients. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's build, not worked. So that had something to do with it. But uh, a lot of my friends from college had been involved in the first generation of the internet, which I really missed. And they finally persuaded me to jump mm-hmm. into this new you know, novel world and I was kind of jealous, actually, reading about them in the magazines and newspapers. This was when? This is February 2000. Okay, all right. Uh, so I jumped in March of 2000. Which, which is just was, before the crash. <laughs> exactly. So I have perfect right. timing. Right. Um, the market crashed March 28th, 2000. Uh-huh. I think I started work on March 1st, 2000 uh-huh. for a crazy startup, actually, that was trying to reinvent news. It was called Voter.com. Uh-huh. It had been funded by a lot of top-tier VCs. Carl Bernstein worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, full I remember t- full that time. one. Yes, you remember yeah. that one. It was doing okay, actually, until the market collapsed in, uh, for real and permanently in June. Mm-hmm. And then by accident, I sort of navigated my way back out here in uh, November of 2000 when Peter Thiel re-became CEO of PayPal. Right. So Elon had been fired, and Peter took over September 25th, 2000. Mm-hmm. And then when I was considering what to do as Voter was struggling, I called up Peter and asked for advice. How did you meet him? I had met Peter this is the a first. Famous yep, I investor. met Peter literally the first day of my freshman year in college ah, when he was delivering this was where? at Stanford. Stanford. He was delivering newspapers to my dorm room, literally personally delivering newspapers door by door across the entire campus. Wow, why? And so I, <laughs> I have no idea, okay. but it's amazing, uh, you know, how serendipity sometimes works. So in any event, I wound up over time writing and editing for the newspaper. But long story Which short. Which newspaper was this? This is called Stanford? Stanford Review. Okay, this is the conservative this one. This is conservative. You are very conservative. I am conservative. You are conservative. All I right. still am. Right. Um, so in any event, you're a constant surprise. Yep, yeah, got to you know got to defy uh, expectations. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in any event, I called Peter up and asked for advice, and he said, "Well, I can introduce you to a lot of people in Silicon Valley, but why don't you come join us?" And so six weeks earlier, he had joined. He had been promoted as interim CEO of PayPal because PayPal was suffering, it was bleeding a lot of money. It had some. It had merged with X. It had right? merged with X. Had fired the first CEO, it was the guy named Tim Harris, that lasted about a month. Mm-hmm. Elon took over. He lasted about three months. Right. And he was Peter, their competitor that they merged with. Exactly. They were both giving away free money, ten dollars each, to uh, try the service, and that. Peter felt like that was a race to hell. 
And mm-hmm. so they merged, so mm-hmm. they at least wouldn't have to compete on that basis. And then they had a challenge of like turning a very unprofitable business. In August of 2000, the company lost over $10 million a month, which mm-hmm. back then was a lot of money. It was losing money to fraudsters, mm-hmm. had lots of internal challenges around brand and mm-hmm. architecture. And um, Elon went on a trip and was famously replaced. Mm-hmm. Peter took over CEO, and he wanted to upgrade various parts of the company. So he talked me into joining. And you but, were what, legal? Or? Um, no, I ran originally what we euphemistically called business mm-hmm. development. Um, what that really meant at first was keeping Visa and MasterCard from killing us mm-hmm. um, and negotiating with them and coming up with clever government-oriented regulatory strategies to- and Why um, did you go there? What was the, the impetus? Well, I didn't have a lot of choices. Yeah. <laughs> My startup was collapsing. I left a very prestigious law firm, which kind of works on a lockstep basis. So mm-hmm. once you get out of the world of elite law firms, it's very hard to go back. It's something my mm-hmm. parents didn't understand when right. I was just kind of jumping off this cliff. So once I jumped off this cliff into startups, I had to make it work. And in 2000, there was nobody hiring. Like mm-hmm. The only companies hiring out here was Netflix, um, if you wanted to go down to Los Galtos, Google, if you had a PhD, and that was about it. eBay was still hiring. And so I happened to be lucky that uh, Peter wanted me to join PayPal. I also knew David Sachs pretty well from Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some context about what they were doing. The company wasn't doing that well, but at least it cut through the clutter. We were about the eighth largest brand, if you measured at the time, but massively unprofitable. And it felt like it'd be kind of a fun ride. I'd sure. learn a lot, do a lot, and who knew what would happen. So and Max um, and Levishin was also there. Max was there. I didn't know Max when I joined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know Reed when I joined, but I yeah. obviously met them very quickly Incredible thereafter. Of people. Yeah, um, it was a, a very good pool of people, which I didn't totally know, but I kind of triangulated from Peter and um, David that they were probably hiring and recruiting and working with other smart people because that was sort of their DNA. Mm-hmm. And then I joined. We were losing a lot of money. Everything was going wrong. But very quickly, Peter took control, changed a lot of things, and we got you know, in months to basically break even. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally I started with this one project, then moved on to keeping eBay from ruining our business, then moved on to assume control of corporate communications, then took on some other projects and they eventually came together, ran some power seller um, sort of management on eBay. And it came into a constellation of jobs. Basically, that's why I had some fancy long title because it was mm-hmm. just a, a pool of things that Peter found interesting and important, but that nobody else was doing well. Right. And he just threw them at me and I became like the you know, sort of recipient so of Peter. by doing, right? Yeah, Peter, you know, famously had this philosophy where every person was responsible for one thing in the company and anything he was uncomfortable with the performance of, he would just assign to somebody new or different. Mm-hmm. And so I basically got a lot of Peter's projects and they mm-hmm. just stuck. And so that's what I did. Fortunately, the company went public um, after, you know, this whole like turnaround. And then even after going public, though, we decided to sell the company to eBay later in 2002. Why so, was that? Well, a couple reasons. One, they were your biggest customer? They were, well, effectively the power sellers, the long-tail fragmented sellers that sold on eBay accounted for between 70 and 90% of our revenue, depending upon how you measure things. Mm-hmm. So obviously we had a massive platform dependency on eBay. Secondly, um, we didn't have a lot of traction in new markets. Back then, this, too was early. Be- this was before Google AdWords really took off and Google became a home for small businesses on the internet. It was just barely starting to happen. So there wasn't a lot of great places to go. Amazon was a closed shop at the time. Like they didn't have a third-party seller marketplace that was really thriving. They wanted 10% of our company to work with them. And mm. you know, that was a non-starter. So we didn't have a lot of choices. We didn't have a lot of growth areas. We were providing support for internet gaming sites, which the legal regime sort of changed under our feet at the time. So even that became a So you were a precarious. surf of eBay. Yeah, we were basically dependent upon eBay, and mm-hmm. we didn't know how to fix that. And eBay hated us and was trying to kill us. And we felt like we were doing well in stopping that. 
but all it took was one bullet. Like uh, Reed Hoffman had a uh, metaphor, which is just because someone shoots a gun at you five times and misses doesn't mean that the sixth bullet doesn't kill you. Right. So there was a point at which we were, you know, running out of potential, like the cat has nine lives, getting nervous. And so we decided to sell. Right. So we sold. eBay's culture was very different than our culture. This is under Meg Whitman. Yeah, under Meg Whitman. Their culture was more of an MBA, PowerPoint, or consensus-driven establishment culture. Ours was an iconoclastic, technical. Bunch of screamers. Uh, yeah, it, you know, <laughs> All sort those of Israel, in one room. Israeli culture. Yeah. Um, very confrontational. Very much things decided by debate, vigorous debate, mm-hmm. sort of type A personality, no PowerPoint whatsoever. Yeah. And so there wasn't a good cultural match once we were acquired, even though there's a good product match and market match. So most of the senior people left very quickly. Peter left the day the transaction closed. Reed mm-hmm. Hoffman also left the day the transaction closed. David Sachs stayed around for two weeks. I stayed around for three. Roloff Bota is a partner at Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Made it for four weeks. I think Max made it there for about three months. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Stoppelman for about five. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the talent sort of left. You know, at one point, Roloff quipped that there was an inverse correlation between someone's ability and how long they stayed at PayPal. <laughs> um, fortunately, most of these people went on to do other interesting yeah, things. Yeah, they did. They did okay. So you then did well, and but without a job. I was without a job, so what does one do? I went back. Peter was setting up this thing called Clarium, mm-hmm. which at the time was a combination of hedge fund and the beginning of like what became Founders Fund, mm-hmm. and helped incubate and invest in companies in 2003. If you dial back your memory, it's 2003. Almost no one believed in Silicon Valley that there was going to be another wave of consumer right. technology innovation. And some people believed there wasn't going to be any technological innovation in Silicon Valley at all. So we were one of the few groups that were actually looking for entrepreneurs to fund mm-hmm. and to incubate. And so I helped Peter do that for a year and eventually navigated my way into LinkedIn, which mm-hmm. I had invested in back when Reed was starting it, but I actually joined full-time January 1st, 2005. Right. I remember meeting with him for the first time and it was, he had just started, he had just left PayPal and he was with Matt Kohler, I think. Exactly. So Matt was actually partially working with us at Clarium and partially working for Reed and then LinkedIn started to show promise. So Matt became a full-time employee. At, and uh, what did you do LinkedIn. at LinkedIn? LinkedIn, I ran business development at Corp Dev. Again? Again, we didn't have the regulatory problems and the competitive problems mm-hmm. that PayPal had. So what I mostly focused on was revenue creation. Mm-hmm. So we created some alternative revenue streams like this targeted advertising product and this premium subscription product, um, as well as came up with the idea of indexing your profile into Google, which back mm-hmm. then was fairly revolutionary. Right. So it drove a lot of traffic to people's profiles. It created a pretty good growth engine uh, for the company. So it's kind of working on strategic projects. Right. We did that for about two and a half years and then... LinkedIn hired a new CEO, so I decided to leave and do something different. He was sort of from a very different DNA. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ash heap, of, ash heap of history. Yeah, I remember him very well with the Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> so you remember those. So and then you went over and did that very strange startup with Max Levshin. <laughs> yeah, so you may see a common theme here. He's already apologized for it on the show. <laughs> well, we learned a lot actually. Yeah. Um, there's some commonalities. Let's name it. Go ahead. Slide. Slide, so Slide was a, a company that was building applications on top of social platforms. Yes, I remember. Which is a very good idea in some ways, but you have a significant platform dependency. Yeah. Like, so we had this problem at PayPal, which we were able to solve of building on eBay. Mm-hmm. It was more a little bit more difficult to build on Facebook than it was to build on sure. eBay for a variety of reasons. It was a company of its time, let's just say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that one, um, not that many people remember. Mm-hmm. Um, some people remember the apps like Superpoke. And remember, the you wrote a column about this throwing mm-hmm. the sheeps. Yeah. You yeah. enjoyed that. Uh, enjoyed so we provided, myself. you know, a lot of laughter and a lot of mirth for a lot of yes, people. Um, at one point, we had, you know, 100 million or so, you know, monthly users. 
but it became very difficult for us to compete with the social games. Yeah. Social games made a lot of money, yeah. and they used that money to invest in Facebook advertising and effectively yeah, Facebook politics. And yeah, and we we kind of didn't want to compete on that basis. That wasn't our DNA. We weren't very good at it, even if we did compete at it. Mm -hmm. So eventually, the company was sold and acquired by Google yeah. um, in 2010. Yeah, yeah. It, well, there was a logic. I think the company just it took a little too long for the deal to consummate as well as integration afterwards. So the idea was to build a mobile photo sharing product. Right. This is before Instagram took off. Mm -hmm. So Max's thesis that actually he discussed with like Larry and various other senior people at Google was you could beat Facebook, which was one of the core you know, mm -hmm. sort of strategies of Google and concerns at of Google the at the time in 2010 by building a photo-oriented product for a iPhone. And actually it was a brilliant idea Turned out Instagram actually leveraged it perfectly. In fact, had Instagram not sold, I really believe that they would be beating Facebook right now. Mm -hmm. But by the time the original handshake between, let's say, Max and the Google team occurred, to the time the deal closes, to the time the team starts working on projects, six months went by and Instagram had a network and it was yep. exploding. So it was a little too late. And then and there was the politics, politics, of, politics of certain SVPs and I just, Google. <laughs> I just had lunch with one of his least favorite ones. Exactly. It was very nice. It was a very pleasant lunch. So you then, again, out of a job. I was out of a well. I was actually at Google. Right. Um, That's and right. They wanted for me. They wanted me to New York Minute. They wanted me to stay to market this Google Plus platform yeah. that was just about to launch. Yeah. And I took a look at the product and I said, "There's no way I'm personally going to market this. Yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah. And you'd have to change this and this and this." But the train tracks were kind of laid down. Yeah. And a large company like Google moving around train tracks and isn't something out that happens. There. Yeah. So well, and I also had an incredibly interesting offer. You know, Gideon, you had put me in touch with Jack Dorsey. So mm -hmm. Gideon had led. Had you I, not met Jack? I'd spoken on a panel with Jack and I'd met him at a conference once, but uh -huh. didn't know him very well. But Gideon knew both of us very well. Gideon had led the Series yes. A investment on behalf of Kosla into mm -hmm. Square. Former Yahoo exec. Former exactly. Lots of YouTube, YouTube CFO, YouTube. Uh, Facebook CFO. So I'd known Gideon back to his YouTube days and he thought that Jack and I would be a good pairing. So mm -hmm. he introduced me and, you know, we had a series of lunch, dinners, breakfast, whatever. And decided to work together, and so that was an incredibly you know attractive opportunity compared to staying at Google marketing Google Plus. Right. Um, so I decided to do it. It was a big leap of faith. The product hadn't launched. Square this hadn't Square, launched. There was yeah. no users whatsoever. You're like a little like Zelig, Keith. What's the you're sort of there and then these mogul people? You're there helping the mogul people. Yeah, I've created a little bit of a ability to work with people who are very passionate about what they're yeah. building. Um, if you think about who I've worked for in Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel, David Sachs, Reid Hoffman, Max Levchin, Jack Dorsey, and Vito Kosla. Yeah. There's some common denominators yeah, there. Yeah, you like Doug Stamper on – I just, <laughs> just binge-watched House of Cards. Oh, I hope you don't kill people. Uh, no, I haven't killed anybody yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, th I thought about killing people. Yeah, yeah okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> I, I would imagine. So, But you've been there as sort of helper almost. Do you ever – is that sort of your quality or do you feel like you didn't want to be a CEO? Because we talked about it, I remember, yeah. when you were – I think actually working with someone who has a vision of what they want to build is, mm -hmm. a, is a great job, especially if you share the vision. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good job at all if you don't share the vision or believe in the vision or agree on first principles. Mm -hmm. But if you do, empowering someone like that to be successful and push the envelope in a way that actually works is an awesome opportunity. So I've been lucky enough to be able to work with people like that yeah. um, and hopefully help them fulfill their vision. And so that's a sort of a great opportunity. It's a certain skill set of you know working with someone who's very energized, extremely focused, has very strong views. Mm -hmm. 
but not necessarily just doing what they want you to do because right. I don't think you add that much value then. It's like having a filter but being able to work there's with their vision. There's not that much attention paid to not the main person. Like it's interesting because there's a lot of a lot of people who are successful are successful because of the people around them. Well, I think that's true of all companies. We have an yeah. adage at Coastal Ventures, which mm-hmm. is the team you build is the company you build. Mm-hmm. So one of the most important things, I think, to be successful in Silicon Valley is to be able to recruit talent, especially in a hot market, which mm-hmm. we've seen for the last five years. The only way you're successful is by being a magnet for talent. So identifying talent, recruiting talent, working with talent, enabling talent, empowering talent. It's one of the first things Peter taught me, actually, literally my first week at PayPal. We went for a jog around the Stanford campus. He was kind of asking mm-hmm. for feedback. What do you think of the first week? And he sort of explained his whole management philosophy. And the most important part I remember, so this is from November 2000, was ultimately you can't hire people who are super well established because every other startup, the Googles, the Facebooks, will outbid you with money. You've got to be able to find people that are undiscovered. Mm -hmm. And that's the core ingredient for a CEO and a core ingredient for a startup is being able to find those people, assess them when the rest of the world doesn't know how to assess them yet. Yeah, that's very true. All right, when we get back, we'll talk more about that with Keith Raboy, who's a well-known entrepreneur and investor in Silicon Valley of startups, and now he's at Coastal Ventures. If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable. Business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We'd also like to thank Walker Corporate Law. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help of your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. Unlike traditional firms, they only have lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience, which means that you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on-the-job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe that when lawyers bill by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com, or you can call the founder, Scott Walker, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com, or 415-979-9999. We're here with Keith Raboy, a well-known Silicon Valley entrepreneur and investor and uh, all kinds of things. You're kind of a jack-of-all-trains. We were just talking about how to succeed sort of behind the scenes at companies. Let's finish up with your career. You went to Square sure. and then left. You had a difficult leaving of there, which we won't go into in great detail because I wrote a lot about it more than I wanted to. But why did you want to go to somewhere like Square? What was the... Well, the attraction was, obviously, I knew something about payments. Um, my PayPal roots you know, were actually useful. So the Venn diagram overlap the company was looking for was someone who knew something about the financial services world and who was still yeah. innovative. Right. That's a very small Venn diagram yeah, overlap. Right. So they had struggled for a year to find like a partner for Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I happened to be one of a few people that actually right. had the right combination. Yeah, so it was very attractive to me. I took nine years off of payments, mostly because I remembered a lot of uh, regulatory nightmares. regulatory nightmares, competitive nightmares, a lot of sleepless nights, let's put <laughs> it that way, during my PayPal days. Uh, so it took a long time. And in fact, half of my friends thought I was crazy. The day it was announced publicly that I was going to Square, I literally got texts and messages from 
half of my friends who thought, you're insane. Why are you going back to payments? That's such a boring industry. It's so mm-hmm. commoditized. Now blah, it's blah, hot. Blah. Yeah, Try now it. it's super hot. Well, partially I think it's hot because Square did a really good job of creating mm-hmm. a brand right. and creating something that was different that consumers really loved. In fact, one of the days, my second week on the job, I actually saw this Twitter stream that Jack, not surprisingly, had in the office of all tweets about Square. Mm -hmm. And we got permission to ship our first 10,000 squares. So it took a year to get permission through the various parties that be to ship these 10,000 squares as a pilot. And once we shipped them to all 50 states, we saw the tweets roll in and people were jumping up and down with glee. And I looked at this monitor and I remember walking over to Gideon, who had just visited the office Mm -hmm. on that Friday, and said, you know what? this might actually work. Mm-hmm. He's like, what do you mean? He, and I walked him over to the monitor and showed him all these tweets. I said, this never happens in financial services. Sure. Can you imagine any bank getting bank. a reaction like this? Right. So as soon as I saw that like love and the reaction to the design and the brand and the quality of the product, I thought we had something special, which mm-hmm. turned out we did, but I didn't really know that when I joined. Right. Um, so I thought it would be a kind of a fun ride. It would be a challenging role and you know, combination of all the things hopefully I'd learned from these various other people that I'd worked with, mm-hmm. and that's what it was. It was a great test of that. And what was Jack Dorsey like to work with? He had left Twitter at this point. He was sort of in that weird limbo land. That's true. So he started the company about a year earlier with a co-founder, Jim McKelvey, um, mm-hmm. solving a problem. You know, They had worked together back in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and he was pretty passionate about it and wanted to build a company from scratch, um, Like, and he built it in his own way, um, which I think is a great opportunity for anybody to take advantage of all the things you've seen, you've seen other people do, and rather than inherit that, inherit that in those decisions, rebuild from scratch. Yeah. So Square's really Jack's company. Yeah. Um, so back then, though, one of the most interesting things I remember was the day I showed up for my first interview, he was wearing a Yankees hat, mm-hmm. and <laughs> which is very inconsistent with his current style, but mm-hmm. he was wearing a Yankees hat, which is uh, a good omen because I'm an addicted Yankees fan for like 40 years. Mm-hmm. So we talked mostly about the Yankees for the first half hour. Oh, wow. And so I knew I was going to take the job as soon as that, <laughs> that conversation. <laughs> Conversation ended. That's how to make that's how to make a decision based on a hat. Good job, Pete. Um, so you left Square and you were deciding what to do. There were a bunch of possibilities. Correct. Why did you take? You took a moment there because you were going to go to some companies. Yep. Correct. Well, I decided to compare. Mm-hmm. So I'd always kind of wanted to be a VC. Like right. I grew up in an era. Because we talked so, about it. Because it was sort Valley. of you were like the dark side. You made yeah. fun of VCs. That's true. So I grew up though in an era where. Being a VC was aspirational for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I always wanted to be a VC. As you know, I was a very active angel investor. Yeah, yeah, you for were in a decade. lot. Who were you? You were in tons. Like, I was the first investor in like YouTube, invested mm-hmm. very, very early in Airbnb and a bunch of Lyft, mm-hmm. very, a set of really good companies. Not Uber? Uh, not Uber, um, unfortunately, but yeah. uh, can't win them all. But in any event, I've been actively investing for a very long time. And why were you doing that? Just because you had some money in you? Yeah, to help people. Um, sometimes it's about helping specific people. So a lot of the people I invested in were ex-PayPal people like mm-hmm. YouTube or Yelp mm-hmm. um, or Palantir. So right. common DNA and helping mm-hmm. them propel them. Secondly, sometimes you have an ideological perspective on you want to propel the world forward in a certain way and you think it's good. Um, so I found that interesting. I found it intellectually interesting to keep sharp. When you're in a company, you have almost no peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. You really have to be focused on exactly what you do and just master that. Mm-hmm. And by at least getting involved in meeting with people who are solving other problems and tackling other challenges, it kept me like mentally aware. Right. And so I enjoyed that. Is there anything you looked for in startups? Um, mostly I was investing very, very early. So I tried to be the first investor everywhere I could. Mm-hmm. And that meant basically ba- – Meaning ba- how much would you put in? Uh, fifty to $100,000, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty typical actually in Silicon Valley. Valley, the thing I, the number one criteria was always people. Mm-hmm. So it was very similar to hiring in that sense as I was helping train my brain of finding and identifying extraordinary people. 
because it's the extraordinary people that really propel startups forward. Mm-hmm. Once you get success, then you fill in with very talented people and just normally great people. But it's the extraordinary people that really create the initial value because you have to invert inertia. Inertia in a startup is very bad. Like no one uses your product. Nobody wants to use your product. Nobody thinks about your product. And so you've got to in, in alter that. And that usually requires some heroic effort. So I, I think by investing, I got better at predicting who is likely to be extraordinary mm-hmm. and then use that while I was recruiting for my own companies and for myself. So it was kind of a synergistic experience. But that gave me the license to be a VC one day because I had a track record of the closest proxy for a VC is angel investing. Right. So, you know, and not surprisingly, that was an option that was... So you go to Kosla. So I went to Kosla. I had, had the benefit of having a Kosla partner on my board for seven consecutive years. Mm-hmm. So David Wyden was on our board at Slide, so I yes. knew him really well. Mm-hmm. And then Gideon and then Vinod had joined the board, so I knew him through my experience of running board meetings at Square. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what led to you know a, a very strong relationship both ways. They knew me as an executive mm-hmm. for seven years, and I knew two of the three senior partners at Kosla very, very mm-hmm. well. So I think that was an easy transition. But I definitely considered you know joining another company I mean, there's. What was it? I forget. It was reported about, but what uh, was it? <laughs> there was a, there was a few, but uh, I ultimately decided that the companies that I was most interested in. Oh, Twitter. Right. No, no. It, well, it wasn't Twitter, I but there were companies I was most interested in had a lot of traction. Yeah. Which was good because then there's a lot of levers to control and move, and it's a great sort of resource and a great opportunity. But it wasn't like building from scratch, right. and I was inheriting a lot of things and a lot of values yeah. and, and the founder's own vision. And I felt it would be better to go early if I was going to do a startup. Or start your own. Or start my own, which uh, turns out we were able to do. So one of the compromises I made is when I joined um, Kosla was I didn't want to lose the um, energy right. and the adrenaline rush, actually, right. of running something and starting something and the stress of that. Like I need a, I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie. And I need a little bit of that in my bones. And being a VC, yeah, there's I remember not a lot visiting of it. you at the office, and I and you had that nice exactly deck, it's, and you were like, "Look, a nice deck." I'm like, "Oh my god, he's yeah. dead." So being a VC is more like being a chief psychologist. Yeah, a lot of so lunches. we have an office. You sit down. Yeah. You ask people what their problems you, are. Like, yeah, exactly. So I need something to stress about. Right. So helping create a company on the side gives me just enough stress. But then being a VC has a lot of great attractions. So, so you put in money in Stripe, and yeah. There? So we we invested in Stripe after I joined Coastal mm-hmm. Ventures. We and I, you know, I love what they're doing, and the team is phenomenal. Several of my former colleagues and um, friends work there. Mm-hmm. But the most other payments area. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was also on the board for twelve and a half years of a company called Zoom, mm-hmm. which went public and yep. then was acquired by PayPal. So mm-hmm. I've been in, you know in and out of payments for a while, though I don't think of myself as a payments person. But um, at Kosla, one of the best things is you get to work across the broadest possible set of topics. If you're ADD, being a VC is an awesome job because mm-hmm. every meeting is different. The company's market is different. The problems the company's encountering, the stage of the company. It's like getting to read World Book Encyclopedia all over again every mm-hmm. single meeting. So mm-hmm. one hour we'll talk about databases. The next hour we'll talk about robots and rockets mm-hmm. and then payments and then photos. And so it's all over the map. And I've always been intellectually curious. So for intellectually curious people, being a VC is probably the perfect job in the world. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, the people you work the people you work with, the founders you back, even the founders you don't invest in but that you seriously consider mm-hmm. are incredible. I mean just incredible talent, ambition – drive, all of those tenacity, all of those characteristics, 
you don't have the ratios you have in a company. You just work with the most awesome Except, people on the planet. Isn't that kind of like being a lawyer? Same thing as like you're not doing it. You're it's not saying, yours. You do have a stake. Unlike being right. a lawyer, we're just paid per hour usually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is actually you have a, you know you have a real economic stake in the company thriving. Um, so and you join. We, we're pretty active investors, so we often join their boards. So we're pretty involved. Like there's companies I work with that I meet with twice a week. Mm-hmm. There's several companies I meet with every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be part of the team. It's still not the same as being right. the leader on the team, right. but you're part of the team. So I like that. And it's sort of like, I know you're not a basketball fan, mm-hmm. but working with fan. working with entrepreneurs like this is like learning to play basketball by playing with the NBA All-Star team. Mm-hmm. It's not a representative sample of the human population. Mm-hmm. But if you like like working with super high energy, super ambitious people, the questions they ask you are by definition incredibly challenging. Like if it was an easy question, they would have already done it. it like right. The answer would have been already solved. The company would have already been doing X. So when they walk in with this piece of paper and this checklist of questions they want to talk about, these are like the hardest what, questions on the planet. What makes a great entrepreneur then when you're looking for it? Combination of a couple things. I think Paul Graham wrote a great blog post in 2009 called Relentlessly Resourceful. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important criteria is one way or the other, they solve a problem. So they can go over that wall, under the wall, through the wall, make friends with the wall, obviate the wall, somehow or, another, somehow or another, <laughs> exactly. somehow or another, that wall is not going to exist in their mind and eventually in reality. Mm-hmm. That's number one. I think raw IQ does matter because I think you're solving problems that most people either don't see or can't solve. And that's usually a function of horsepower times mm-hmm. tenacity. Mm-hmm. If you take about like just pure ability times mm-hmm. tenacity, that's the number, number one combination that's most powerful. And then third is they have this concept of an idea maze that Balaji wrote about or taught about in a Stanford class, which is they really understand how to go from beginning to end and all the trap doors and the hidden treasures, and they can plot that out for you, and they just see it. They see the future. One of the most amazing examples recently is, have you reread Elon's blog post from 2005? No, I haven't, but I shall. You, you reread it. Like Literally everything in, that he did at Tesla is in that blog post from 2005. Wow. It's like perfect. And so he has a lot of these it. characteristics. He'll be at the code conference. I will read it before. You should read it before and ask him about it. Yeah. Every line is just beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's well, rare to see that. Well, he's developed, hasn't he? Yes. Well, <laughs> um, you know, like a lot of people, well, a lot, <laughs> as developed. you know, a lot of the best entrepreneurs learn very, they have a high velocity of learning. So yeah. many of them struggled in their first job. Yeah. You know, from well, the, I just remember a jerk with a Porsche and then he <laughs> became really smart. Like he was smart the whole time, but it was really a different personality. Well, people learn lessons and, you know, yeah. everybody makes mistakes and you learn lessons from that. And it's a curriculum that it's very difficult to prepare for this kind of curriculum of running a high growth startup. Back then there wasn't a YC either. So there wasn't <laughs> like a, a graduate school class you could take that would get you up that learning curve really fast. You had to do it by trial and error. So I think a lot of founders actually who are awesome and incredibly talented made mistakes and some of them actually got fired and they had to come back and mm-hmm. you know fix everything right. and they're much better now. Well, the great ones ones are improved. Mark Zuckerberg comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, the too. rate Another. of improvement. Like one of yeah. the things I'm always looking for is when I meet somebody, what's the rate of improvement? Yeah. And you can't always tell because you may have to make a decision in a week mm-hmm. and so you don't see all those dots on a line of the rate of improvement. But if you know someone for a month or a year or several years, you see that yeah. rate of improvement and it's just Awesome. All the great ones are. Right, we're here with Keith Raboy, an entrepreneur and investor. He's at Coastal Ventures. And we will be right back because I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media. Kara, I have to be kind of quiet because I'm coming to you from Samantha B's office. 
which are oddly in a BMW dealership on the west side of Manhattan, but whatever, it's where the funny is. We had an awesome conversation that's going to be up in a few weeks. In the meantime, we have other awesome interviews. Jason Hirshhorn is going to tell us about his near-death experience and also how to build a cool digital business based on other people's work. It's called Curation. Jenna Wortham is going to tell us how she got this great job with New York Times Magazine, writing about things like iPhones and queer culture. Oh my God, we had Frank Rich on this week. He's great. Frank Rich is the guy who used to be the drama critic at the New York Times. You would know him from that. And he was the culture critic at the New York Times. Now he's all about politics critic at New York Magazine. And I'm in particular sort of a fanboy for him because he helped make Veep, which is one of my favorite shows. It's on HBO this week. It's hilarious. It's mean. If for some reason you're not watching it, you should. We talked about all that. You should go to iTunes. You look for me. You look for you. You hit subscribe. Everyone's happy. Thanks, Kara. We're here with Keith Raboy, an investor and entrepreneur. He's at Coastal Ventures now, but he's been at a zillion companies. It seems like all of them. Um, we were just talking about what makes a great entrepreneur, what makes a great VC, and what's wrong with venture capital, would you say? I mean, besides the fact the gender disparity, the everything disparity, all the differences disparities. So I think venture capital is just a very challenging job to start. I mean, you know, you've heard the famous adage that if you basically bat 300 – you're like a Hall of Famer. So mm -hmm. that explains the challenge. I mean, when you're investing in venture capital as opposed to growth capital, you're working with very raw ideas, very mm -hmm. raw companies, very raw founders, and trying to project the future. And getting that right just some of the time is really, really hard in a very efficient market. Like, it's extremely competitive. Mm -hmm. I have very smart competitors left and right. Like, all of the people, all the best people I've ever worked in in my career are like VCs like almost now. Really? And I'm, I can be with all of them, like mm -hmm. Peter, Reed, Hoffman, mm -hmm. and Chamath, and Matt Kohler, mm -hmm. Roloff. Mm -hmm. All of these people are somewhat competitive with what I do. So you have to compete with like some of the smartest, most talented people of a generation. And it's just a really hard challenge to project from the proverbial two kids in a garage, what's going to take over the world? Mm -hmm. So that's one fundamental just challenge with venture capital. Second thing is in a very hot market, one of the ways you create a PayPal is by assembling a critical density of talent. Mm -hmm. So you marshal a lot of talent and hold these people together for a long time and you build amazing things. And Apple, Amazon are mm -hmm. great examples of that. Mm -hmm. That's extremely difficult to do in a super hot market where everybody thinks they can be an entrepreneur and everybody throws money at them because they always think the grass is greener somewhere else. Right. So it's very difficult. It's been very difficult to be an investor over the last five years and be super successful because of the propensity of talent to fragment. To what now? Now what? that the, the world has changed, I believe, right. very strongly. So I, How so? That the flush of money – Chasing entrepreneurs has changed starting last summer, mm -hmm. more conspicuously in the fall and winter, and that right now it's not quite as easy to just start a company and get a lot of money or start a company, raise a seed round, and then get a Series or A. Or keep a company or going. Or keep a company going, as we're seeing more in the public domain. Right. But things take a while to ease uh, why, why is that? Why is that happening? I don't know exactly why. People point to the public market corrections, but that's not a fully explanatory, uh, fully satisfy, satisfying answer. Surely the public market corrections, which have roughly discounted the value of many companies by 40 to 50%, have affected how we do our job and the valuations that entrepreneurs can achieve. However, most of these companies also can't raise money at any price. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense. That's not a function of just a market value compression. It's actually a change in the philosophy how investors are looking at investment opportunities. Basically, there was a fear of missing out dynamic that oh. was driving a lot of investment decisions in the mm -hmm. last three years since I started being a VC. And now it's shifted to more of a default state of no. Prove to me why I should invest. So my inertia, my colleagues' inertia 
our competitors' inertia tends to be defaulted. It seems to kind of now. idiotic on both ends. Yeah, I mean, the extreme. There is an extreme. Like it's sort of an oversteering. You know, John Doerr once coined this great adage, which is Silicon Valley. Go, you know, sort of ebbs and flows between fear and greed, mm-hmm. and we're more back in the fear mode than the greed mode mm-hmm. at the moment, and that has a lot of derivative consequences. But some of the consequences are actually good. So I have, for example, more time to do diligence. The entrepreneurs used to expect me to make an answer on the fly. And that's not necessarily healthy because sometimes we'd be wrong. Not healthy at all. No. Not necessarily. Now now I have weeks to a month to seriously evaluate almost any company that, uh, you know, sort of presents to us. And I can dig into the backgrounds of the founders, into the technology, into the market, into their cohorts, the user behavior data in a way that was very difficult to do um, two years ago in a compressed period of time. So hopefully we make smarter decisions and the money's routed more efficiently to better entrepreneurs. What about what's happening with the current companies? Now you were on the board of Yelp. Yep. It's been talked about to be bought. All kinds of companies are struggling. At the same time, the Ubers, Stripes, and others in the world get a lot of slacks, get a lot of money. Talk about, you know, why is a Yelp in a situation? Because it could be slack in a couple of years. I mean, that kind yep. of So Yelp's an interesting story. So I spent nine and a half years or so on the board of Yelp. So I know the company pretty well. I think it's personally, I don't own any shares anymore, so I don't have an economic incentive in saying this. I think it's wildly undervalued. I think it's still the monop- it still is a monopoly for making decisions on local purchases for normal Americans and actually some parts of the rest of the world. And there's no other way that currently exists on the market to make decisions about where to eat, where to go out for drinks, what plumber to use that's at scale that you could use every day, and Yelp still is. And so I think it's really impressive. I think in travel, there is a you know alternative that's done very well, but I think fundamentally Yelp has a monopoly on content that's useful to normal Americans. Well, it's a perfect example. It's the same thing with Yahoo. There's a, like someone who is one of the invest, the possible buyers of Yahoo, was talking to you yesterday, and they were saying, "Well, it's just a big mess, but there's not many billion users." It's on the, in the world, that, so that you're buying mass scale. Kind of thing. So the difference with Yelp, though, is I think the content is decision-worthy, mm-hmm. and that is a very unique uh, sort of franchise, whereas Yahoo has a problem of what its vision and what its place in the modern world isn't really clear. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I have a Yahoo app on my home screen? I can't even fathom having a Yahoo app actually on my home screen on my phone. Mm-hmm. And if Yahoo doesn't have a place on my home screen in the modern world, that's not a very valuable place to be. Yelp actually has a lot of power yes, users that have Yelp. Yelp on the home screen. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that that iPhone app is driving something like 60% of all Yelp searches. And so that's insulated them from some of the you know evil desires of Google mm-hmm. because people aren't dependent upon using <laughs> Google. Desires of Google. It sounds like a movie. A it is. Movie. It should be a great movie. The evil um, desires of Google. It's the European version. <laughs> It'd be so boring. <laughs> We could you could have Luther on so your show boring. and he can tell you yeah. all kinds of yeah, stories. I know Luther's but, great. Um, anyway, I think Yelp's a great company. I think it is doing really well. I think the economics of the business look very attractive from what I can tell, but it's clearly being penalized. I think it's being penalized. A and, Google is trying to do more. Yeah, and so there's a discount there. People think that Facebook's going to do more in local, maybe, maybe not, maybe not successfully, but yeah. there's They've some discount being siege. applied. But, yeah. and, but then at the same time, companies like Uber and Stripe and others, Airbnb, can do no wrong. Which of. makes some sense. I mean, it's a bit of tell, the way I would think of it now as an investor, financial investor, is it's a bit of tale of two cities. I think the companies that are doing phenomenally well are going to be magnets for capital. Mm-hmm. And the companies that have slight flaws in their metrics, slight flaws in their team, are going to suffer. But if you can get to a massive escape velocity where you're a magnet for talent and people see the future, Airbnb being a great example, mm-hmm. Slack being the current you know topic what of about choice. Pinterest that's sort of fallen off. I think Pinterest is somewhere in between. I mm-hmm. think Pinterest does have a lot of users, mm-hmm. does have an incredible audience. I think it's doing a lot of things really well. It's clearly worth a lot of money. The question is how much is it worth? Right. I mean, it's sort of like the Twitter question. 
one can love Twitter and think it's an incredible product mm-hmm. and changing the world every day, which I really believe, and still think it's worth $11 billion. That's not an indictment of Twitter to say it's worth $11 billion. No. Most companies Is he capable are, of running both companies? You've worked with him? Um, I think yes. You're being I, kind. No, I think it's chal- – I mean, it, look, it's, it's a challenging job for anyone. I think yeah. Elon said this. They did that um, NFL thing today. That yeah, was yeah the NFL thing is awesome. I mean, personally, it's, it's a perfect product for me is fusing yeah. Twitter and the NFL together. Yeah. I'm not sure all my friends reading me on Twitter mm-hmm. are going to love this, but uh, we'll see about that. But I, I, th- I think it's a great idea. So Rupert Murdoch pioneered the idea yes. of, us- of using sports to switch normal people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Sports is one of the few passions that to a lot of people in the world, Americans, they will actually change what they do to get the sport of choice. Right. So DirecTV had the NFL ticket, you know, uh, kind of an exclusive basis, and people would insist upon having DirecTV because they have to watch their NFL team. Same thing was true in Europe. He did this with the BB something satellite mm-hmm. for or, you know soccer matches. So Twitter could follow that metaphor. It is bit. an interesting move. It certainly, yeah, is. it's very Murdoch-esque. So are you feeling good about the environment or worried? Or I'm worried about companies, and we're certainly involved in some that have a very high burn rate and have raised a lot of capital. I think if they're early stage companies and they're run very efficiently, I think there's great future in technology. Like it is inevitable that technology plays a greater part in the world and in all of our lives over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like I think there's no doubt that tech kind of being on the right side of history, Mm -hmm. being an investor in technology is a great thing, like clearly true. That said, I think the companies that were raised in the last generation where oxygen Mm -hmm. uh, for as a proxy for money was cheap or free have built in some cultural um, disadvantages right. that are hard to change. Right. I think, and that therefore- Trust if, fund kids. Yeah, effectively like that, mm-hmm. actually. And some of them do well, right? Just like some trust fund kids, their parents taught them some really strong values. They made them get a job mm-hmm. delivering pizza. You know, there's definitely some trust fund kids that are incredible. Mm-hmm. But there's some bad things that come with inheriting a lot of money. Yeah. And the same thing's been true of people who built a company where capital was basically free, built a high burn rate with a lot of extraneous features and didn't realize that that's not sustainable. Right. And the world's changing on them very quick. And so the faster they realize that the landscape is changing. Which you're urging. Your- we're urging all of our companies. We've been urging them that for a while. But fundamentally, it takes time. And some entrepreneurs appreciate it right away. They snap their fingers. They're like moving levers around. They're editing things. And then some wait. And those ones with a high burn rate that wait are going to have challenges. Right. So the last question, you said at the beginning you were conservative. Now, you're also gay too, correct? Mm-hmm. What does conservative mean? Like, you hate yourself? Or <laughs> are you a Trumpian? Are you a Trumpian? Uh, no, no, no. You no. obviously haven't been following no, me on I'm Twitter. Just, no, I know. I don't, not your political stuff. I'm probably the uh, you know most vocal anti-Trump person in the Valley. Yeah, that, um, that would be but, me. Uh, we're, we're, we'll compete on that basis. Yeah. But uh, no, conservative means I don't believe that government does things well, shouldn't be doing many things, doesn't do the things it does do well. <laughs> and so I believe that free so you're market- you're one of those libertarian people. Yeah, not totally a libertarian because I believe there's a role for a strong foreign policy, strong military yeah. to protect us. There's some mean people out there. Yeah, there are actually. And yeah. I think being naive about that is is very dangerous. So I have an odd combination of free market libertarianism, mostly internally in the country, and then a very strong military, strong, robust foreign policy. How did you get that way? Good question. Mostly by reading. Um, Growing up, I was very interested in politics. Actually, a little bit of a reaction to my parents, who were very liberal. Mm -hmm. So I grew up like- like Michael J. Fox? (laughs) Yeah, a bit bit like that. I had parents that were 
kind of democratic activist involved in things like Common Cause. And then they told me how you know, bad the world was going to be when Ronald Reagan was elected. They thought he was going to blow up the world in a nuclear holocaust and he didn't like Jewish people. All these like, yeah. you know, kind of crazy ideas. And then he got elected and everything got better, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And so it sort of undermined this whole oh, world dear. view. You're such a disappointment to your I know. parents. They, they really, they, we have trouble but at are Thanksgiving. You socially, are you socially liberal, would you say? Yeah, like, probably. What do you think is going on in New North Carolina? You have to have an opinion about, like PayPal just pulled out. Yeah, I, I saw that. Um, I, look, I think there are benefits of allowing people to do what they want to do. And that includes people that do dumb things too. Mm-hmm. So I don't have like a rule that says everybody must adhere to my social views about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mostly more libertarian if you ask me. But I have some quirks in that. Like I believe in capital punishment. Mm-hmm. I believe there are evil people that actually need to be executed mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. So I have like, you yeah. know, an odd constel- constellation you of really views. Do. Yeah. Wow. But in North Carolina, you think that companies should be standing up and saying, no, none of this? I think it's great because that's a free market reaction. So one of the things I like about this is right. it's actually not a government reaction. It's not, no, the it's go- a, it's yeah. not like a well, the government's people. fighting it too. The go- right. But I, I like the idea that businesses That Mark choose- Benioff is yeah. changing the yeah. world. Yeah, that yeah. businesses should choose and business leaders should choose where they want to do business. And the the environments and the jurisdictions that have the most attractive laws, and that can be a low tax rate, or it can be a gay friendly, you know, gay friendly, tolerant yeah. society, whatever the case is, that people should move to jurisdictions and companies should move to jurisdictions and do business do you with think jurisdictions. That's a good enough reason to do it because it's the right thing. Because you know, we talk a little bit about that. You mentioned a lot of venture capitalists are all men. Should there be more of a push to be more diverse? Should you be doing things just because it's the right thing to do, or not? Well, I think it's ultimately tested by performance. Like, mm-hmm. I believe in merit. Like, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm a conservative. Yeah. I believe ultimately you get valued just like you do in baseball. You have a batting average, a slugging average, et cetera. And if you're really good, you get in the Hall of Fame. I think that's true in venture capital. The problem is there's a long feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So it'll take me 20 years to figure out how good I was. So the question is, what do you do with that? Right. Um, at the end of the day, though, there was going to be an X and a Y next to my name. X dollars invested, Except Y you, return. you may be missing out on the, your advantages that you don't even realize you have. That's true. You know, I think there's. I do think it's a fallacy in Silicon Valley. They think it's a meritocracy. It's just not. It's. I call it a meritocracy. You're successful because you're successful because you're with people that think you're successful. You know what I mean? No, and, that's true. But and that, the people that, in it don't realize the. I, I agree with that, but I agree. I think that that is true of every single field. Every, I've been involved in multiple yeah. fields in my life, yeah. and every single field is like that. There's no field and no human endeavor but that should does people it. strive to change it just to get to bring more diverse people in, different ages, different genders, different is or no, just no, just the way it shakes out. No, I, I think people should look for competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So we would absolutely love to hire someone who's diverse if it led to better investments, different opportunities that would be successful. Well, when's it going to start? Uh, we work on it all the time, believe it or not. Why we like, it work? We're, we're recruiting. fascinating. Well, I have trouble. I mean, you may not, may not believe this, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to convince people to be venture capitalists yeah, today. Most imagine. of the people like we want to recruit don't want to be VCs. Mm-hmm. And if people want to be VCs, we don't necessarily want. <laughs> like, I mean, as I said, I started this whole conversation by saying when I grew up, it was aspirational to be a right. VC. If you talk to founders today, yeah, they want it, to is, founders. it is absolutely not aspirational for people, especially the next generation. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we are fairly diverse in a different sense. So if you think about our se- four senior partners, mm-hmm. two of us are Jewish, mm-hmm. two of us are Indian, both immigrated. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, Asian partners. So we have a pretty broad, we have gay partners, mm-hmm. straight partners. Mm-hmm. So from a religious standpoint, from a nationality standpoint, from a born in the United States standpoint, we have a fair amount of diversity. It's not perfect. Right. But we recruit a lot. And you, you can't force someone to do this job, unfortunately. Yeah. There's a 13th and 14th and 15th yeah, Amendment yeah, yeah. <laughs> against indentured servitude. To become a VC and get hey, extraordinarily like we, wealthy. We can, hire, we, can, we can hire you, but you'd no. say no, right? <laughs> I'd say no. <laughs> I couldn't 
to sit in that office. That office scared me. I got to tell you. I was like, get me out of here. It was oh, so it's pretty. Beautiful. It is. Yeah, it's it beautiful. It was lunch and a, like a beautiful view. And I was like, let me the hell. I don't know it's why. It's designed to foster creativity. Ugh. Oh, my God. Thoughtfulness. But I, it I really like is. I putting on a pair of khakis and an Oxford shirt you, immediately. No, you can try. You've seen Ben Ling in our yes, office. He's definitely not wearing point. that attire. Who knows what he wears? But we. <laughs> But we we definitely are psychologists at the end of the day. Like it's a consulting personal services yeah. business. So I, someone sits down next to my chair and I say, so what can I help you with? Yeah. And then, you know, what are your challenges? And then I basically say, well, have you thought about this? Have you talked to this person? Have you yeah. tried this? And that's really the job. That's and a good not every, Some people would like that job and really enjoy it. Yeah. Other people need to have the levers under yeah. their control. Absolutely. And then otherwise they'd be unsatisfied. Right. Last question because we got to go. Um, what do you think is the most Underhyped area and the most overhyped. Very wow. quickly. Overhyped, possibly VR. Yeah. Partially because I only believe that it may only apply to entertainment, which is a big world, and utilitarian, very professional business-to-business transactions. I'm not sure it's a mainstream consumer activity. All right, other than that's a big call. That's a big call. And then underhyped is still probably the replacement of human judgment with math. computers. Not necessarily human labor. Human judgment. So I mean, lawyers, doctors, mm-hmm. accountants—like the high end of human decision making. I just said Ann Majewski. She said we're not going to need radiologists soon. Just, oh yeah, we've invested in a company that already has proven that they can—they we don't need read X-rays better, better than humans. Yep, yep, hundred percent. So is that judgment or? Yeah, I think that's judgment. Um, it's an easier judgment because there's what's known as a training set. Mm-hmm. So there's an objective diagnosis that you can train a machine against. Right. The softer judgment, like a law firm, for example, when they write a brief. It's not clear how you grade that brief because there's no canonical right answer to the best possible brief. Yeah. So that's a much harder back problem. Back to being a lawyer. Yep. Do you regret leaving law? No, not at all. Yeah. So after VC, what are you going to do? Um, maybe if I ever do something else, it'll be in sports. Oh, okay. Um, it's a hobby of mine, you know, passion of mine. If you follow me on Twitter, I can't stop talking about sports. Yeah. But that's a very different world. If I had grown up 20 years later, so if I was 20 years younger – where you can combine math and insight into sports, I probably would have went down that path. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in a generation run where- Run a team? What? No, yeah, analytics and insight based upon math and data as opposed to opinion. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up, all sports were dictated by opinion, by people who had expert judgment. Right. At Coastal Ventures, we don't really believe in expert judgments. That's why we're doing this real estate startup at Open Door. We believe mm-hmm. that we can price a home without mm-hmm. any humans, right. better than an agent. Yes. And that's, that's what we're allowing people to do. We've invested in a company company called Judicata that starts being a tool for lawyers, but over time allows you to weed out some of the worst parts of practicing law. Of which there are many. Medicine, we invest all the time in software that makes doctors better and in some cases replaces the need for doctors. Yeah. So I think we love that theme and that's going to play out over the next 20 years. Right. Um, so that's the biggest area of, I think, of underinvestment. People think robots are replacing you know, hourly wage workers. That's not Sergei. what that's Sergei. not what we're investing yeah. in. We're investing in human judgment is fallible. There's a lot of studies about how bad experts are in any field. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to make math, you know, judgments. So if you're gonna be a doctor in the future, if your kids want to be a doctor, don't have them study biology and chemistry, have them study math and statistics. Yep. Yep. I just watched the big short last night. Perfect. That's exactly. a great movie. A that's an incredible movie. Math. Yeah, and it also just the tenacity of the people who the made a lot of money people. and the con- contrarian thought. Like that's yeah. actually a very inspirational movie to me as an investor I agree. because it had all the dynamics of what makes you know, a great it made investor. Me feel like me. I felt good about being me. Yep, when excellent. I, when I made calls on some companies and now exactly. they're coming true. No, anyway. that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Keith Raboy. What a fascinating conversation, and uh, we'll see where you go in your next career. With thank sports. you very much for having thanks. me. Thanks a lot. 
If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Max Levshin, Lena Dunham, and Ann Wojcicki, just to name a few. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka, comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all our events like the Code Conference and Peter Kafka's Code Media. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.